The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you from the Warner Center in Woodland Hills, California. This is the home for Autism Live. It is also the home for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Thrilled to be with you on this wonderful Monday morning. Got a big show planned for you. Uh, we want to remind you that we are going to be here talking with you and that we hope for you to interact with us. In fact, Traven's going to start to show you some of the different ways that you can connect. I want to remind you that our homepage is autism live.com when you go there there's so much to do there uh, the toy guide is still there and I encourage you to check it out because there's some amazing toys I love when you guys have written and said you know what I looked at the toy guide I got that toy and it was great and my kid loved it I'd love pictures of that <laughs> If you got a toy now or over the holidays uh, for somebody and it was great, send us a picture. I'd love to see that. That would make my day. Anyway, um, you can also go through our whole library of videos, which is super fun. Or if you just want a certain genre of our videos, like you really like Jargon of the Day because you roll that way, then there's the whole playlist that's Jargon of the Day. But if you like the recipes, go to the recipe section because uh, it's super fun. Um, and uh, Trayvon, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, off the cuff here too, we have not shown the January recipes that we did a couple of years ago. We might have to hunt those up. Um, I just the other day was making the meatloaf that we made um, from our January recipes. And it's a great recipe because you sneak all these carrots and broccoli into the meatloaf and it's yum-alicious. Uh, okay, so anyway, back to this. Uh, you can also chat with us directly from the homepage by going to the little chat button at the bottom of our homepage. Click that and it opens up. You can be typing, you hit enter, it shows up here on my screen. It's free, it's anonymous, right? When you're writing to us on Facebook and YouTube, people can see what you wrote. If you wanna be anonymous, you don't want people to know it was you who said it, you can do that over at our homepage, autism-live.com. I do like to start uh, on Thursdays to remind you that we have lots of experts who are on the show. I've got a couple of great ones for you today, uh, but remember, I'm not one of them. My credentials to be here, I'm a very proud mother um, of an individual who was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. And here's the other thing, I have a, I have a lot uh, of a karmic debt I need to pay forward. So I care deeply. I'm a former teacher too. I think that sort of qualifies me. I care deeply about what you're going through. And by you, I mean the larger autism community, of course, that's individuals who are on the spectrum. Of course, it's everyone who loves them and cares about them and wants them to be able to do the things that are meaningful for them in their lives. So I want to help all of you to get to the things that are important to you. It's not one size fits all because it can't be. Our community isn't one size fits all. So uh, write to us. Tell us what you need and 
but don't, you know, I, I, I'm fond of saying now it's been, we just the other day crested the 14 year anniversary of my son being diagnosed with autism. And it's been over a decade that I've been hosting a show in one way or the other um, about autism and interviewing experts. So, you know, look, do I have an informed opinion? I think so. Um, but it is an opinion. It's not an expertise. So if you want to know my opinion about something, write in and specifically say, Shannon, I want to know what you think or say about this. I'm always happy to share that. But otherwise, we're going to let the experts field it, right? And if there's something you need expert uh, information about, write to me and I'll hunt down an expert in that thing. How's that? Okay. We do like to start Mondays with something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym, we try to figure out what in the hey nani nani are the experts talking about what does this have to do with me do i really have to learn this term because i've i'm you know here with the learning things right um yes if it helps us to save time money and make more progress then we want to learn it right so uh, this you know, this term today, reinforcer, is at the crux of all of that. Now, when we do jargon of the day, first we give you the actual definition, and because I, I enjoy making fun of it, let's be honest. And then we give you a working definition, hopefully, so that you can begin to understand how this might work in your life, right? And if you don't get it the first time, don't sweat it, because we go back over these terms. And sometimes I think it takes, you have to hear it, and then experience it, and then hear it again, and you go, oh, Oh, I know what that looks like, and I know why that's important, right? So give, give yourself a little bit of a break if you don't get it right off the bat. So today, reinforcer. This is one of those good old words where we all go, well, I, you know, I know what a reinforcer is. It's something that enforces something, right? Um, but how does this pertain to autism and particularly to ABA? So let's take a look at this great definition that we have. Here's the actual definition. A stimulus slash event delivered contingent on the exhibition of a behavior, which increases the probability of that behavior continuing, continuing to occur or occurring more often in the future. For example, if the child enjoys being tickled, tickles may be used as a potential reinforcer for correct responding or appropriate behavior. Thank goodness for the example because otherwise we'd be like whistling in the wind in a field somewhere going, huh, what? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I love how complicated experts like to make things be. Uh, contingent on the exhibition of a behavior which increases the probability of that behavior continuing to occur or occurring more often in the future. Huh, what? Right? Uh, okay, but let's move on. You kind of get it though from the example, right? It begins to make a certain amount of sense, but notice that they qualify and say it's a potential reinforcer. Let's, and so let's move on to our working definition so that we can get into why, why's and wherefores here. So a reinforcer is something that acts as a reward for your child or for you, for any individual, and motivates him or her or you to continue engaging in a particular behavior, good or bad. Okay, so basically the reinforcer is the paycheck. It's the thing that makes you, it's big enough that it makes you want to continue doing a behavior, good or bad. When you're smoking, you get some sort of a paycheck, right? For some people, it's the sting of the, you know, the inhale. For other people, it's the social interaction, right? But there is a paycheck and so you continue to smoke. And then, then it becomes an addiction, but that's different. Um, so look, if we want to make sure that a behavior continues to happen, then we want to give it a reinforcer that is meaningful. And sometimes 
you know, think about yourself. Sometimes you're willing to do something um, because you, you, let's use the example of chocolate cake. You, you want a piece of chocolate cake. Somebody says, do this, you get the piece of chocolate cake. So you do it. Um, but then sometimes you're like, ah, I've had chocolate cake. I don't want chocolate cake and it's not enough for me to do it. Right? Because we change our mind. So a reinforcer is only a reinforcer if it does make the behavior happen or happen more often or happen, it's more likely to happen, right? Okay, so we, that means we need to give preference assessments, which when we're asking somebody to do something, ask them what, what would make it worthwhile. And then you gotta try it to see if that's actually really reinforcing. And remember that all of the bad behavior that we do, and I say bad, because we all engage in behavior that's not useful or helpful, right? We all do. But all of it is being reinforced in some way. And if you really wanna figure out how to change that behavior, figure out what the reinforcement is. Okay, they're telling me I, I, I got to hurry this along because we got big guests. So moving on, we always have a question of the day for you. And our question today, I absolutely love. We're not in February yet, but it's never too early to talk about this subject. What is your definition of love? The big love, what is it? I love, this is like an icebreaker for me if I'm talking to people at a party and it's not a business party. Like, I think this is a great question to ask people. What's your definition of love? One of my friends from college, she said that her mom taught her that the definition of love is when you're willing to do whatever to be with that person. As in, if that person is shoveling poo for the day that you're like, eh, I don't like to shovel poo, but I'm going to go shovel poo because I'm going to do it with you. That that was the definition of love. Uh, that, like, I walked around with that for years, and then I realized that's not for me. That's not the definition of love. Uh, and I think the definition of love is when you feel better when you're with the person as opposed to not being with the person. Like you feel like you're your best self when you're with them and you want to be your best self with them and you feel like you are accepted completely and you accept that person. Now, is that, uh, is that possible to maintain, you know, a hundred percent of the time? I don't, I don't know, but, um, I certainly, uh, that is, I've been blessed with the love of my life. And, and I always say to people, the biggest gift that my husband has given me over the years is that he loves me for exactly who I am, not in spite of it. Yes, I talk too much and he's okay with that. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's love. Uh, okay. So then we always have a topic for the week and our topic this week is that today is enough. You know, so often we get ourselves so much into the future and so much into the past instead of dealing with what is today. And, and especially if you are an individual on the spectrum or you are taking care of someone who's on the spectrum, I want you to focus on what can I do today? And just ask yourself that question. What can I do today? And, and you can add things to What can I do today to support my child speaking? What can I do today to reinforce, you know, what's happening uh, with my ABA, ABA provider? What can I do today? Because when you put today plus tomorrow, plus the next day. If you just do enough of the right things day in, day out, things get better. So, and I know sometimes we're like, but you know, he can't read, right? I remember when my son was three and I was like, you know, he can't, he's not gonna be able to go to college. And people were like, start here. You can't climb this mountain by starting at the top, start here and walk the path day by day. And my son's going to college and a year and a half. Ah! 
<laughs> right? Uh, and I'm not ready for that. Let's not go there. But the point is saying, what can I do today? Focus on today. Live your best life today. Do what you got to do today. What action can I take today to set myself up for success? What action today can I set my child up for success? What action today can set up my team for success? And do that today and then do that tomorrow and then do that the day after and it will add up to where you want to go. I'm telling you, it works. All right, we got a big, big show for you. We got Bonnie Yates, special education attorney, coming up in just a minute. She's going to answer a question about IEPs, and then she's got some really good resources for us. Then a little bit later, we have Paul Worthington, and he is going to be with us from Linda Mood Bell. He works, he's the director of the research and development at Linda Mood Bell, and he's going to tell us about some really interesting research having to do with language processing and how we can change that equation and how that helps with reading comprehension because I know you guys write in and ask a lot about you know well my kid can read but the comprehension isn't there and that he's got some really interesting research to talk about us with that so that's what's happening today stick with us we'll be right back after these messages Welcome back to Autism Live to this wonderful segment that we call Your Rights with Bonnie Yates. She's a special education attorney. She is joining us via Skype. Bonnie, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. How are you, Shannon? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We're thrilled to have this opportunity to talk to you and have you answer questions and give us heads up on legal things that we should know about. But first, we want to talk about the wonderful law firm that you work with and what your disclaimer is for being on the show. Okay. So I work with Toner Law Offices. They're um, based in San Jose. We now have offices in uh, El Segundo and uh, Irvine as well. Um, if you want... Um, a complimentary consultation and you're located in Northern or Southern California, if you go to the website, Toner Law Offices, you can fill in, there's a quick handy dandy sheet to fill in for your consultation. We'll set it up for you. Also, we are asking questions today um, and we're answering questions today under um, California law and federal law, but not law in the other 49 states. So if you have another state problem or you have a specific problem, we really suggest you confer with an attorney in your state. And a good list of attorneys can be found at the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. I don't know all those people personally, but I've met a lot of them at the COPA conference over the years, and I think they're very dedicated practitioners, many of whom have a family member with a disability which is why they're doing this. Yeah, Um, wonderful resource. So uh, we have a question, and then we have a lot of information for people that hopefully will be new and useful. And I just want to remind people that when you were on the show last week, you kind of threw out a challenge, and we've gotten some response already. But I, oh, yeah. I, I yes, but I but I want to be fair and equal and even, and give and remind people that they can be writing to us that you have partners um, at the the Tolner Law Office that you said you know people basically our viewers get to sit, write in and say who they would like to be on the show. So if that's you, what you got to do, so that's, if, you got to vote. So you right, got to vote. Write in to me. Go to the website, look at the attorneys, look at their bios, and see who you want to hear from, and we'll bring them on the show. Okay, fabulous. So should we start with the question that we had come in? 
Let's always start with the question. Okay. And I thought this was a good question really for everybody. Uh, somebody wrote in and said, what should I be doing now to prepare for my IEP in April? And an April okay. IEP is a little bit late, right? Aren't, aren't they mostly February, March, or am I mistaken? I don't feel like there's any mostly. Okay. You know, I feel like they do them up under, you know, up to the wire. Uh, the problem would be if you need a follow-up IEP and you're starting so late, it's going to be hard to schedule. If you have a stay put that you want to perpetuate, you are better off having your IEP earlier in case you have to file for due process. Um, the administrators won't be as completely fried as they will be by the time they do the inordinate number of IEPs that they do, which I don't understand how another human being can do 80 or 125 IEP meetings in a year, but they do it. So I think early gives you more time to re react. It gives you more time to ask for an outside evaluation at district expense. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Okay. So um, this listener asks how to prepare for her IEP, but she doesn't tell me uh, is it annual, is it a triennial, what's the student's eligibility, what are the placement issues, um, are there new assessments, um, are there specific things you want to discuss with the team. So I'm going to bounce it back to you and ask you, can you please send us a more specific question about what you'd like to get accomplished at your IEP and um, a little more information about the background stuff that I just asked you about, uh, and then we can try to answer it on the show the next time. Can we just briefly, though, address, because you brought up this interesting thing, what the difference is between an annual and a triannual IEP for people yeah. who don't know? Yes. So an annual, uh, the district's uh, legally obligated to meet with you annually to um, revisit and, and update your IEP. And then every three years, they're supposed to do a full reevaluation, so all new assessments and look at things really holistically and comprehensively. So if you're having an annual, you might have new assessments, but you wouldn't necessarily have had new assessments. If you're having a try, actually, they changed the law, and you can waive your triennial evaluations, but I don't recommend people do that. I think that's a bad idea because if you waive your try, uh, then when you want to get an IEE, there's no evaluation to disagree with. Yeah, yeah. So, it, doesn't, it doesn't set you up for success, let's be honest about that. Yes, it's, it's not a good idea. Okay. So, uh, um, You just had a visitor walk past you, Bonnie. That's my lovely son well, who is home from college and we're waving moving to the him. next phase of his life. <laughs> we're waving to him. So, uh, we, it was like, wow, there was like a person who just walked by. Yeah. Uh, okay. I just didn't want to leave it unsaid. So, okay. uh, so you I mean, had some... I was just going to let him be kind of a phantom on the screen. Ah, wonderful. I was way too but, curious. Curious minds want to know. Okay. So um, anyway, there were some things that you also wanted to talk about. What What's on yeah. your topic today? Lots of things that I want to talk about. Um, I'm doing shameless plugs for other people, but I'm doing it because I think the stuff they do is so good, and I think it'll be useful to you guys, and um, I've vetted these people myself over and over and over again, so it's not like I'm just giving you some names. So I had a really exciting meeting with a child advocate who is herself 
the parent of a child with a disability, and she's been taking on areas that I can't take on because they're not cost-effective for me to do so as a lawyer. And the important one is in-home supported services, a.k.a. IHSS. So if you have a child at home with a disability and you provide full-time care for that child, if the degree of disability merits it, you can be paid for all the work you are doing for free for your child, which is significant because it may allow you to stay out of the workforce and stay at home and do the things that you can do for your child that you do better than anybody else. You couldn't pay for the kind of job that parents do for free. So this lady's name is Melissa Schomburg Lander, and she gets IHSS for people, and she told me that the maximum amount is 5000 a month, tax-free, irrespective of other income. So if you want to talk to Melissa about how you might get IHSS for your family, she can be reached at 818-835-2524 or Melissa at Standout Advocates, and advocates is plural, standoutadvocates.com. So that's one really great resource. And Another I want to say, Bonnie, I'm so I'm so in accord with you. We've had Melissa on the show before. We've oh, had st- really? we love them too. Uh, but I do okay. want but I do want to uh, let viewers know because we have people who watch um, all over the country and all, in fact, all over the world, that the IHS that you're ta- the amount that you're talking about and the services that you're talking about, we're talking about California. California law. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Good. I'm glad you know Melissa too. Okay. Next person. Uh, I'm sure Shannon knows her too. Karen Fessel, F-E-S-S-E-L, from the Autism Insurance, Autism Health Insurance Project, so AHIP. Uh, Karen is a go-to person for a lot of my clients if they are um, receiving services from a particular insurance company and they want to know how to perpetuate those services. Karen has a very good handle on what the different companies are doing and not doing. So Karen, uh, and she's also very generous with her time. Uh, so Karen can be reached at Karen at autismhealthinsurance.org. You can look her up, Google her. Uh, she's very good. And then if you have an actual appeal that you need to make of an insurance company decision, I'm recommending that you talk to attorney Randy Curry, C-U-R-R-Y. He can be reached at 949-258-4381 or drcurry, C-U-R-R-Y, at currylawyers.com. And if your request for insurance is denied or the amount you're given is too low, he has over... 30 years experience dealing with insurance companies, bad faith failure uh, to pay under a policy of insurance. And he really loves the work. And he's done a lot of work with CARD, including with Doreen Grandpache. And in fact, the way he met Doreen 
was that my son Nick's uh, in my son Nick's case against Blue Shield, the insurance company took Doreen's deposition and Randy defended her deposition. So anyway, um, those are some resources for you that I wanted to mention. Another is SERR. If you put in SERR, Special Education Rights and Responsibilities, into your computer, if you're in California, you can pull up a really good uh, publication that's written for lay people, but it's written in a very intelligent way, and I use it, and I just think it's something that you can have on your computer, and it, it answers a lot of the questions that you have and that we deal with on the show. So that's special education rights and responsibilities. Uh, so then some other things that have come up. What is the difference between a non-public and a private school in California? Now, under the IDEA, the states have the ability to pay for a private school placement for a student if they want to. And the rules about how they contract with the private school is left up to the individual state. So in California, if you have a placement that's private and the, the, you want it written into your IEP, the district can do that. But then what's going to happen is they're either going to have to assist the private school in obtaining non-public school certification or they're going to have to give the school a temporary waiver of certification so that they can make the private school into a non-public school. Non-public schools have an application process through the California Department of Education where they have to provide certain assurances and uh, fingerprint their staff and TB clear their staff and make sure that they meet minimum state standards for certification and then they become a non-public school rather than a private school. The reason that's significant in California is if you are non-public, A, all the rules about discipline, expulsion, and, and other things apply to you just as if you were in a regular public school, whereas if you're in a purely private school, that's not true. More and more of our families, though, are turning to private schools because the non-public schools are few in number, and they... Uh, are limited in terms of what they can offer because the districts pay them so little. The districts pay like $125 a day to a non-public school, and that's just not enough money to get the kind of training and qualified staff that you need to work with a person with autism. So th that's just a little bit on, on public and private, uh, non-public and private schools and how they differ. And then we keep hearing about other health impairment on the, on, the sh on the show and in life. And other health impairment, I've told you, is not an automatic idea eligible disability. You have to show, for example, that your ADHD or your asthma or your uh, migraines or whatever the issue is, um, is... Um, something which causes limited strength, vitality, or alertness, including a heightened alertness to environmental stimuli that results in limited alertness with respect to the educational environment that is due to a chronic or acute health problem such as asthma, attention deficit, 
um, diabetes, epilepsy, a heart condition, hemophilia, lead poisoning, leukemia, nephritis, rheumatic fever, sickle cell anemia, Tourette syndrome, and adversely affects a child's educational performance. So that's, that's section 300.8 C9 of the federal regulations, so 34 CFR 300.8. Um, I can send this all to you, Shannon, after the show if you want to put it up. But basically, you've got to show all those things to get eligibility under other health impairment. And that's come up a lot, so I wanted to mention it. Spectacular. Um, And then I was thinking, I don't know how much more time we have. Four more minutes. Four more minutes. Oh, well, that's good. You know, I, I was thinking that that we should do some reading of the of the law to give people sorry about that give people a, a sense of what it's like to read the cases and the regulations and and figure out um what they mean uh so i had something i wanted to read you about about all of that but first i wanted to say another issue that's been coming up is who's the responsible district for child find and services if, let's say, a child is removed from public school and put in a private school? And the answer is that really depends, and we can talk about it some more, but I'm going to throw out a few examples. So under 34 CFR 300.131, if you live in one place and your child is going to private school in another, so let's say you live in Los Angeles, but your child is going to a private school in Burbank, question comes up when it's time for an assessment who is the responsible district to do that assessment and the answer is you can ask either your home district or the district where your child goes to private school to provide um, that evaluation uh, the district of residence is responsible though for providing FAPE not the district where the child is in the private school um, but the the private school, if it does an evaluation instead of the home district, can be responsible for funding an IEE. Um, people in private school have something called a services plan as well as an IEP. The services plan says how many or what type of services they're going to get from um, the public school district that their parents live in. And the answer to the question is uh, a service plan along with an IEP needs to be updated annually. So just because you're in private school doesn't mean you don't have an IEP, quite the contrary. Um, Homeschool requirements, because I know some of the, the families that listen to the show are doing homeschool, the federal requirements are at 34 CFR 300.130 through 44. And the, the lead educational agency for evaluation and reevaluation for homeschooled students is the district of residence. So that's some stuff about private school students. That becomes a, a thorny issue in certain circumstances, particularly with homeless children or foster kids that, that you know, don't have a, a stable residence. So with that said, Shannon, if you don't have questions, I was going to proceed to read some of the law that we all deal with every day, unless we're out of time. We've got a, a little more than a minute. Do you want to take a minute to read something? No, I'll save it for next week. Okay. I think that's better. I, f- I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm it's, all in it, it'll, it'll be more meaningful if it's okay. not. 
Let's um, take that minute then to talk again about uh, the the Tolner. Is it Tolner and Associates? I'm never sure about no, this. No, it's Tolner Law Offices, okay. and you can reach us on the website. And if you want to reach out to me, you can reach me at three ten two four five one nine six eight. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, and and that's it. And. And to just be specific, though, you're in the Southern California realm. And so you're if people are needing help in Southern California, they would be calling you directly. If they need help in Northern California, they can call directly to the law firm, correct? They can. They can call me. They can call up north. It's up to them. There's some very fine lawyers in the San Jose office, and you're going to be meeting them soon. All right. Very excited right. about that. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Bonnie. Okay. Take care. Thank you, Shannon. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right. We are going to take a break, and then we are going to come back with Paul Worthington. He is the Director of Research and Development for the Linda Mood Bell Learning Processes. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Autism Live. We're very excited right now because joining us via Skype is Paul Worthington. He is the Director of Research and Development for the Linda Mood Bell Learning Processes. Uh, this is uh, a, a wonderful company. We've actually done an interview before about Linda Mood Bell, but it's been a while. And just the other day on the show, we had two brothers, the Cox brothers, who were on here talking about the amazing things that they're doing in their lives. And we asked them, like, what do you attribute your success? And one of the things that they mentioned was Linda Mood Bell. I uh, love when I go to a conference and whenever there's Linda Mood Bell is there because my favorite thing on the planet, and I'm holding it up here, Paul, uh, you guys give away these wonderful post-it note, little, little notebooks. I never go anywhere without my Linda Mood Bell uh, post-it notes. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just a side thing. There you go. If you, if you need more of them, just let me know. Oh, you could like that's a wonderful gift for me. Whenever like I love them, uh, they're <laughs> truly wonderful. So, Paul, uh, welcome. I I don't know that I thought about it before. I didn't realize that there was a research and development uh, portion of Linda Mood Bell, which just makes us like you even more. I think a lot of people just think of it as an educational support um, that helps their children. Uh, to learn more and get more out of the education that they get. But the fact that you have research and, and development is very exciting. Tell us just briefly um, about, for people who don't know about Linda Mood Bell Learning Processes and your research and development department. Sure. Um, we developed the R&D department. Uh, now it's been, I, I'm guessing, close to 25 years ago. Uh, the reason being uh, twofold. One, the major issue is while we've experienced a great deal of success in addressing the needs of kids who have language processing deficits, um, there's still so much we don't know. Um, and so that was really kind of the impetus behind um, conducting additional research because there's always room for, for improvement in, in our programs and processes that, uh, that we've developed and engaged in over the, over the last 30 plus years. Um, the second reason is that from an internal standpoint, we really wanted to take a look at monitoring the fidelity and the ongoing development of programs within our organization. You know, we're now up to over 100 centers around the country internationally in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, Australia, England, um, soon to be Dubai of all places. Um, if we have the research capacity 
in, that would allow us to monitor whether or not we're actually improving on the processes, um, that's an important consideration. So internally, I do research on the work that we do across the corporation within the various sectors and the work that we do with schools and the work that we do in our Lindenwood Bell Academy, which is basically our internal um, schooling operation. If we're working internationally, for example, in Honduras, we're doing some work down there. What's that look like as compared to um, what we do in our centers? We're, in, uh, we're working in schools. And so the, that was the second reason. Back to the first reason, which was that forced us to engage in collaborations with research universities, especially now that the neuroscience of being able to understand what's physiologically going on in the human brain um, that technology is so robust, that gave us a new way to validate whether or not we're actually increasing those areas, the, the functionality of those areas in the brain that are predictably related to good language processing and cognitive skills. Well, and just to clarify, Linda Mood Bell Learning Process, and do, you, do you guys say it processes or processes? Processes, yeah. Processes. Either, okay. either is fine. Okay. So, um, but this is not something that is just for individuals on the autism spectrum, but you guys have an, an entire division that specializes in folks on the autism spectrum. Is that correct? It's not a, a division uh, specifically. It is within a division on our learning center um, uh, operations, but it crosses over. I mean, we wind up with, in our school contracts where we're training teachers um, out in public education, for example. They're using the same programs, only applying it to kids on the spectrum who are within public education. Got it. Um, in my division, where we're working on the research side, we collaborate with universities to conduct um, um, studies to look at the approaches that we recommend where it applies to addressing the needs of children who um, have autism. And clearly in all of our centers, I mean, kids come in who are on the autism spectrum. So we have to cross train a whole lot of people in order to meet the needs of kids who are on the spectrum. Okay, wonderful. Now, you uh, mentioned language processing deficits on the autism spectrum. And I think a lot of parents are probably like, wait a second, because they're used to just talking about language def deficits, but I don't think the average parent necessarily thinks of it as a processing. And so it's probably, uh, for some parents hearing that, it might be an exciting thing to hear that, oh, wait a minute, there's a process there, and maybe if we rectify some things that there will be benefits. So about, for in terms of when you guys are working with individuals, how, uh, how prevalent is this having a language processing deficit? Sure. The, um, we got involved in this um, largely um, as a result of some collaborative work that we had done at a kind of a superficial level with Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh in, um, back in Pennsylvania. And one of the interesting phenomena, which we agreed with, um, having seen a number of kids on the spectrum, is that what they call the comorbidity is not a very friendly word, but all that means in clinical terms is the how many kids on the spectrum also have very specific deficits on the language processing side. In other words, 
in those areas, for example, in reading, specifically within reading, one of the primary deficits that, that jumps up around 50% of the time, depending on who it is that you're reading in the research community, is children on the autism spectrum will have um, very severe, um, moderate to severe, severe um, difficulties in understanding or comprehending what they read and or hear. And that's kind of counterintuitive because uh, so frequently kids on the spectrum, you can put a, take a fifth grade child and give him a college textbook and he can decode the print on the page. But he can't get anywhere near understanding what it is that he reads. And so we have a program that specifically addresses language comprehension and that awareness ultimately led to a collaboration with the University of Alabama in Birmingham with uh, Rajesh Khanna and his colleagues um, as part of a uh, federal grant to take a look at the specific interventions that we had developed to address language comprehension, only specifically do a controlled randomized experiment in working with kids on the spectrum to see not only could we improve their language comprehension from a reading behavioral standpoint, but what happens when you do pre and post analysis looking at the functional connectivity or those areas of the brain that are classically associated with being able to comprehend what you read. And so that led to about three or four years of detailed work um, seeing what kind of effect we could have uh, in um, or working with children who, in fact, did have these diagnosed difficulties. Wonderful. And so, you, you know, you brought up the magic word that so many autism parents uh, want more information about comprehension um, and, and some of the different things that, that you guys are doing to build comprehension. What I'm curious, because you work in the research end of things, um, what do you see happening? What is research showing you happens in the brain that then changes the equation? Does that make sense, my question? Yeah. No, no, it's a good question. Indeed, um, it was a bit of a revelation because we've always thought traditionally, I should say, both in the neuroscience community as well as in the educational communities, we've always thought, well, there must be an area of the brain that's somehow not functioning the way that it should. And the counterintuitive part of it for kids on the spectrum or individuals who have autism was that they're so frequently uh, extensively gifted in some areas, why would it be that, and especially in the area of reading, um, why would it be that they can read so well but they cannot translate the print um, in such a way that once they decode it, then they're getting meaning from whatever it is that they read or for that matter, whatever they um, were listening to. Well, one of, the, one of the findings from this study was, and it was a hypothesis when we went into this study, was that there was an um, idea that was developed again in, in Pennsylvania that um, what they saw in the neurological image of children on the spectrum, spectrum was that those areas that are, that are involved in cognition or thinking or specifically where language is concerned, comprehension, what they saw was that there wasn't the connectivity and the white matter in the brain, those, those areas of the brain that allow for the axons, the dendrites, 
and so forth that communicate from one area to the other, we're not showing up as um, efficacious or as fluent as it would in, let's say, normal subjects who have normal comprehension. So we went into these studies, and it's referred to as the underconnectivity hypothesis. The hypothesis being is that children cannot connect from the language area of the brain to those areas of the brain where you translate languages, uh, language, for example, into basic images where mental imagery is concerned, then um, sure enough, that would in a negative way affect how well they comprehend what they read and hear. So we, we went into this, we went into the study. Um, do you need to pause because you've got a guest for just yeah. it's so okay Sorry. come back to me Traven so that he can uh, deal with his guest um, and, and you can go ahead and take him off for a second because he's got things going on uh, and and I want to point out to everybody that we're we're almost uh, done here in the interview uh, okay Sorry. that's okay that's okay so uh, that's all right it happens to the best of us right yeah <laughs> so, uh, anyway you were saying what I was saying was that so we went into the study thinking, well, that matches what we see with, with children. And, and, and um, we have a theoretical construct on this that the program that we developed, that Nancy Bell developed, the Bell part of Linda Mood Bell, was um, back as far as 1986-87, was that from a um, student observation standpoint, when you see it, we get these students who come in, they can read fine. But when you ask them to give you some idea that they understood what, what it was that they read, they can't tell you. And it became apparent, one of the things that, that Nancy discovered was that um, it turns out that it didn't appear that they were taking that language in and where they were creating mental representations. Like, you know, it's, it goes along with the old cliche, a picture's worth a thousand words. Right. Well, if you take a thousand words, how effectively can you translate that? And it turns out that within the cognitive sciences, there was a prominent um, cognitive scientist uh, up in Canada. His name was Alan Pavio. He developed a theory called dual coding theory. And the simple version of that is that when you try to understand anything, if you're listening to somebody or, for example, if you're reading a book, you translate that into mental images. And the efficiency with, a, with, with which you're able to do that actually correlates very highly with how well you understand what you read. And so Nancy developed a program called Visualizing and Verbalizing. What we did is we took that program, used it with our kids on the spectrum at the University of Alabama as compared to control subjects who did not go through the intervention. And sure enough, um, we found a validation of this underconnectivity hypothesis because after the intervention, the fMRIs, and more specifically, the technology that's used in brain scans called diffuser tensor imaging, did show, in fact, that we increased the conductivity or the white matter in the human brain, where those areas of the brain where language is taken in, we're communicating more effectively with those areas of the brain where we create mental representations, for example, in the hippocampus and back in the occipital lobe. And so, it was a eureka finding for us to have that validated. We, we presupposed that that was the case, but we had no way to prove it. Yeah. So sure enough, K-12 
kids on the spectrum do tend to have this underconnectivity, and it disallows or it inhibits their uh, their ability to get meaning from from what they what they read and hear. So just to be clear, you know these interventions work. Um, you have proof that they work, and it's proof that it shows up on an MRI. Um, so that's pretty impressive. So uh, for we're just about out of time, but so for our viewers watching who are like, okay, well, where do I go to get this, and what do I walk uh, over to the Linda Moo, uh, Bell place, or and and what do I say so that I can get these services for my kiddo? Uh, basically, it's just all it takes is a phone call, um, and we're on. Obviously, we're all over the the uh, the web uh, to look us up. Uh, contact one of our centers. If you call our main offices here in San Luis Obispo, California, um, we can easily switch, easily switch you to a location that's nearest you. I, I might mention in passing also that the results of the study, uh, those studies of four papers have been produced and those, those are referentially offered on our website. But the findings from that, uh, we um, got together with the University of Alabama and wrote another grant they funded another five years of study uh, for us to dig even deeper into these phenomena. And so um, we're actually looking and recruiting subjects right now from across the United States to be involved in the study. And we can point you directly to the folks in Alabama if, if there are families that would be interested in having their children uh, participate in the study. Do they need to be in the Alabama area? Where do they no. need to be? Okay. No, we're in the United States. Okay. All right, so what is the website that they need to go to? It's uh, lindamoobell.com. That's straightforward, 1-800-233-1819. And um, we can direct you to uh, our right, the correct clinical uh, locations and or answer any questions. And uh, folks, are feel free to call me if they have uh, specific um, questions about the research that we're uh, that we've been involved in or that we're currently involved in. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. No worries. Thanks All right. a lot. You take care. Yeah, cheers. All right. You guys, we are totally out of time. And so uh, I'm just going to remind you that this week on Tuesday, we have a best of episode. On Wednesday, we are going to have Dr. Doreen Grampiche. She is going to be here with us. I'm told that it's a hard she's going to be here with us. Um, so don't forget that. And um, I'm going to let you know who's going to be on Thursday, because uh, I don't know that yet. And on Friday, Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy and my good pal, Nancy Allspaw Jackson, back with us. So all of that and more coming up this week. I uh, will see you tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.